Speaking of uh, ministering to college students back in the 60s, as you know, I was doing that uh, full-time. And one of the problems that I ran into repeatedly was this feeling that I, I lived in two spheres, but in neither of them very well. Uh, I was uh, working on a university campus and tried to uh, dress uh, appropriately. That's when I drew all the grew all the hair that I uh, that I have today. That's the only place I could grow it. So I uh, uh, began to grow a mustache and a beard and try to fit in and, and dress appropriately. But I I never really uh, did fit into the college campus because I was over thirty. And everyone knows that students don't listen to anyone over 30. And then when I came off of the campus and was working with businessmen, you know, I'd put on my uh, three-piece suit, but I had the beard, and I didn't fit in there. And I got this, uncan- this uneasy feeling that I really didn't belong anywhere, didn't, didn't integrate very well into either of these, uh, these two realms. It occurs to me that that's somewhat the way... Uh, we feel about the Christian life. We know that we are citizens of two realms. We belong to the heavenly sphere, the kingdom of God. But uh, we still belong to the city of man. We were born into the human race, and we have to live here with with our kind. But at the same time, we've been born again into the kingdom of God. And we have responsibilities in that realm as well. And And sometimes we just feel uneasy about both of them and don't do very well at uh, meeting our, our responsibilities and developing uh, our relationships in these, in these two spheres. One book that helps us, I think, to learn to, to live in, in both kingdoms, the, kingdoms of, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, is the book of Ephesians. And that will be our study for the next 13 weeks. Now, I know two, two questions come to mind. The first is, what in the world happened to Jeremiah? Uh, actually, I did everything uh, with Jeremiah and to Jeremiah that I intended to do. I, I didn't want to teach through the entire book. We uh, just moved uh, hop, skip, and jump uh, through that prophecy and looked at some of the more important elements in the book. We may at some point in the future return, but I've done everything that I intended to do with the book of Jeremiah. So that's one reason why we set that book aside and chosen to study the book of Ephesians. The other question I'm sure that comes to mind is, uh, why are we studying Ephesians when we're studying Ephesians in the growth groups? And some of you are thinking, aha, I knew that the staff didn't know what they were doing. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. And why don't you guys get your act together? Uh, actually, it's by design. We, uh, for once, do know what we're doing. We're, um, what we want to do is integrate the uh, two studies, the growth group, studies in the book of Ephesians and uh, the teaching time here on Sunday morning. Now, there are several things that we would like for you to do. Number one, we want you to start reading the book of Ephesians. One of the best ways to get to know a book and to understand it is simply to read it. Most of us don't read very much to begin with. Television has taken that away from us. And when we do read, we read what Time Magazine described once as dumbed-down material. Uh, Garfield strikes back and thin thighs in 30 days and that sort of thing. <laughs> this uh, heavy literature that we, uh, that we give ourselves to. And when we do read, we tend to read superficially. 
What we would like to encourage you to do is to uh, read the book of Ephesians and read it repeatedly, over and over and over again. The more you read, the more you will see. A number of years ago, I read uh, something of G. Campbell Morgan's method of Bible study. Morgan was, in my mind, one of the best and most profound Bible expositors of, uh, of our generation. And his method of studying the Bible was simply to read it. He read it over and over and over again. He'd read a book sometimes 50 to 100 times before he would teach it. Because the more you see, or the more you read, the more you see. I've mentioned to the uh, interns that are studying with that uh, that are studying with us that Agassiz, the naturalist, used that method to teach his students observation. He would lay a fish on the table, and uh, he would tell his students to observe the fish. They couldn't uh, touch it. Uh, they they could just look at it and take notes. And then eight hours later, he would come back and he would uh, quiz them on what they had observed about the fish. And then the student, thinking that uh, he would get a reprieve from the fish, got a repeat. The next day, Agassiz just laid the same sad fish in front of the student and said, observe the fish. And after about a week of this, uh, he began to see certain things about the fish that he had, had never seen before. Now, you'll find that to be true of Bible study. The more you read, the more you will see. Now, I'm, I'm going to uh, suggest something, and some of you will think this is arch heresy, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I would suggest that you find an old Bible around the house, one that's tattered and torn, and tear out the book of Ephesians. Or get uh, you, you can buy a New Testament, a paperback New Testament, for less than a dollar in some places, and, and tear out the book of Ephesians. That's not desecrating Scripture. We desecrate Scripture when we don't read it and don't obey it. What I'm suggesting is a, is a simple, practical way to get into the book. Tear the book of Ephesians out. Don't throw it away. Staple the pages together so you don't lose them. And fold it up and put it in your billfold or in your purse or in your shirt pocket or coat pocket and take it with you everywhere you go for the next 13 weeks. And uh, you'll have opportunities through the day while you're uh, waiting for appointments or eating lunch or uh, just killing time uh, to take out that piece of, of God's Word and, and read it. It'll take you about 20 minutes to read through the book of Ephesians every time you, you read all the way through. If you read through it every day for 13 weeks, you will have read it almost 100 times by the end of the 13 weeks. And I can guarantee you, you will understand better the book of Ephesians. And what's more, the message of the book of Ephesians will be made meaningful to you in your life. So that's the first suggestion. Read it. Now, you don't have to all tear your Bibles up, but that's just one practical uh, way to, to go about that, uh, that task. Your second assignment is to work on the questions that are in your bulletin. Brian Fisher is going to be responsible for printing uh, a set of questions every week, and those will be in your bulletin. And uh, they're just some simple questions that will lead you into the text and help you to ask the right kind of questions and get the right sort of answers. Thirdly, get into a growth group, will you? As we grow... Uh, the tendency is to become uh, more impersonal, and it's very difficult to find a place to serve and utilize your gifts, and uh, you can do that best in a, in a growth group. Uh, these are not uh, self-contained groups. They're always open. You, you can always get into to a growth group at whatever point you. It, it's practical for you to do so. 
So uh, this week would be a good place, a good time to start. Look on the chart that's on the poster out in the foyer and find a growth group that's close to, to your house and get involved in a small group. These small groups are the life of the church. That's where things are happening. That's where people are growing most. And they're finding the sort of fellowship that they long for. So uh, get into a, to a small group. The fourth thing we'll do is uh, teach on the book of Ephesians here on Sunday morning. So every week you will go through the book, or the book will go through you four times, and uh, your mind will become saturated with the truth of that fine uh, little epistle, and hopefully all of our lives will change. Now, let's uh, turn to the book of Ephesians. Uh, I have uh, about 12 or 13 messages somewhere up in my brain. And I was afraid somebody would jostle me on the way up here and I would, I would give you the wrong one. Uh, so uh, I, it's a little hard for me to focus and keep my concentration here, but we're going to try to stick to the book of Ephesians this morning, okay? Ephesians 1, chapter 1. The introduction, which is the normal uh, sort of salutation that you would find in a, in a first century letter. This is, as you know, a letter or as we say, an epistle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that, that you'll notice as you read through this book is that it, uh, it breaks down into natural divisions very easily. Uh, I, I think of it like a tangerine. The segments are so well-defined, it just comes apart in your hands. And as you read it, the outline becomes very clear. And it really falls into two, two parts around the idea of what it means to be in Christ, and secondly, what it means to be in, in the secular realm, out in society. The first three chapters deal with the, the wealth, the richness of resources that we have in Christ. The, the last three chapters have to do with, uh, with how we live it out in, in Boise. The thing that will strike you most, I think, about this book as you read it is that it reads more like a theological treatise, more like a sermon, than a letter. And yet it's obviously a letter. It, it, it seems very impersonal, for one thing, very much unlike Paul particularly when we know that Paul had spent a great deal of time in Ephesus. He knew these people very well. He, according to Acts 18, he lived in Ephesus for two and a half years, and according to Acts 20, he had come to love those people dearly, and they, uh, they loved him, and he had been all through the city teaching from house to house and in, in large groups and smaller settings and and when he left for the last time, they, they went off, they, they saw him off, and they gathered around him, and they wept that he was leaving. These people really loved the Apostle Paul. And yet there is not one personal reference in the book, except just a couple of names. It really seems odd. In the book of Romans, for example, a city which Paul had not visited at the time he wrote the book, he uh, refers to some 25 or 26 people by name, either people that he sends greetings to or greetings from. And yet in Ephesus, there's none of that. It seems almost cold, very logical, very theological, but very impersonal. How could that be? 
when he knew the people in Ephesus so well. The second thing you'll observe is that, uh, that there's a great deal of hearsay, Paul says in chapter 1. I've heard about your faith. And then he says in chapter 3, you've heard about my ministry. That doesn't sound like uh, Paul again and his relationship to the church in Ephesus because they, uh, they would know on a first-hand basis of one another's faith and, and ministry. Well, the solution to the, to the dilemma is this. I, I don't think that this book was written to the church at Ephesus at all. Now, some of you are thinking, whoop, we finally caught Roper in an act of arch heresy. I knew it was coming because right there in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus. And that's what the word of God says. And before you start writing to the elders, let me, uh, let me explain. If you look in the margin or the side note, of your Bible if you have a New American Standard, which incidentally is the version that I'll be using on on Sunday mornings. There is uh, the little statement, some manuscripts omit the words in Ephesus. And as a matter of fact, it's not just some manuscripts, it's all the really good, very old, best manuscripts that scholars place so much weight upon. That, That phrase simply doesn't occur. It somehow crept into the text uh, along about the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. Well, what is this letter then, if it's not a letter to Ephesus? Well, it's my belief that this was a, was a general letter sent out to all the churches for whom Paul felt responsibility. Perhaps the churches, the seven churches that the book of Revelation is addressed to, as well as other churches throughout the Roman Empire. And... Uh, That particular spot uh, in the text was left blank, and whenever a messenger went to a particular city, to Ephesus or to Laodicea or to Sardis or to Rome, those words were filled in. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints who are at Rome or at Laodicea or at uh, Sardis or at any, uh, any of the other churches which Paul uh, felt a keen interest in and a responsibility for. So that this uh, perhaps is none of the other letters in the New Testament is a general encyclical. It's a letter addressed to all the churches and uh, therefore is extremely uh, uh, helpful for us because this perhaps is none of the other letters in this special way is written to us. Now, all the letters we know are to us in in a very real sense and can be applied to our situation. But this apparently was a general letter which Paul addressed to churches all over the Roman world and throughout all the centuries down to our time. It's a kind of baseline letter giving us fundamental, essential teaching about the nature of our, of our wealth in Christ and our walk with him. Now, let's, uh, let's look again in verse 1. Paul, who is the author, the writer of the letter, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostles, you know, were very special people. There are very few apostles then. There are no apostles now. The apostles were appointed by Jesus as his special representatives and given to the, and, 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 and given uh, uh, his authority. And they knew 
that they had a special and unique authority. They were very self-conscious of their, uh, uh, their uh, power and their right to speak as Jesus spoke. As a matter of fact, Paul, in writing to the church in Thessalonica, says this, When you receive my words, you receive it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God that is at work among you. So he, he realizes that his word is not merely good advice, it's not sound counsel from some man, it's a command from God to be, uh, to be heeded, to be obeyed. Now, who is this uh, issuing commands and expecting compliance? It's an apostle sent out with Jesus' authority, whose words have the same authority that Jesus' words have. And that's why I have never liked red-letter Bibles. Because somehow the impression is left, though I don't think this is the intention of the, uh, of the uh, printers. Uh, the, the intention, uh, the, the impression is left that somehow Jesus' words pack more punch and have more authority than the words of the apostles. As a matter of fact, we don't have anything that Jesus ever wrote. The only thing we have is what the apostles told us Jesus wrote. The only thing we know that Jesus ever wrote, he wrote in the sand with his finger. We don't have any records left from his writing. These are all apostolic writings. And they, uh, they come to us with Jesus' authority. We need to realize that. There's no such thing as Jesus' authority over against the authority of the apostles. All scripture has Jesus' authority. And therefore needs to be, uh, needs to be heeded. I think that the apostles have the same credentials that the prophets of the Old Testament had. They're all Jews. That was the first criterion for a prophet. They had to be an Israelite because God gave his oracles to Israel. They were Jews who received direct revelation. They didn't get their information by reading other sacred books. They got their information directly from God. As God said to Moses, I'll speak to you mouth to mouth, face to face. And their authority was substantiated and authenticated by prediction. They could predict the future with 100% accuracy. And I think that the same criteria that were used to, uh, to authenticate the prophets held true for, for the apostles. That's why I say there are no apostles today. There are people who may have an apostolic type of ministry. They're planting churches and they're doing missionary work where uh, the gospel has never been proclaimed. But they're not apostles. There are no apostles today. Because there are no Jews receiving direct revelation and predicting the future with 100% accuracy. Now, that's not to say some might, might not arise. They might. Uh, scripture doesn't give us any indication that that gift has once for all come to an end. All I'm saying is that there are no people functioning today as, as apostles and prophets who fit the, the specifications that we have in Scripture. So if someone comes to your door... And they can knock, can knock, can knock on your door. And they say, we are here uh, representing an apostle or representing a prophet. Then ask for their credentials. There, there are no apostles. There are no prophets today who, who fit those, those specs. We have their words right here. They come to us with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And they are to be obeyed. This is, this is the truth. Now let me, uh, let me digress here for just a moment. 
We do not have today in the New Testament anything that the Apostle Paul wrote. We do not have the book of Romans. We do not have the, the, the books of First and Second Corinthians. We don't have any of the original writings. What we have are copies of copies of copies. All the originals have been lost. It would be nice to uh, turn up a copy of the book of Romans and uh, find Paul's signature at the bottom, as, as he was inclined to do, as, his, as the mark of authenticity. But we don't have that. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies, 2,000 years of copies, which leads many people to assume that what we have is a distorted text and we can't really rely upon uh, what we have here because everyone knows if you copy uh, a text over a long period of time that goes through many hands, it'll be distorted. As a matter of fact, there are many groups today that say that's so. They come to your door and they say, we have the original the, uh, the, the early church distorted and twisted the message of the apostles and what we have in our hand is a guidebook that will help you to retranslate the New Testament to go back to the original teaching of the apostles. That simply is not true. That simply is not true. The, the probability that we have right here what Paul actually wrote on the scrap of papyrus or parchment that he wrote on, the probability is greater that we have that actual text than that we have the text of the Gettysburg Address. The evidence is all there. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of great New Testament manuscripts which uh, go all the way back to the, to the early 2nd century, some of them, which uh, when put together and collated help us to know exactly what the apostles wrote. A number of years ago, some archaeologists were digging in Alexandria, and they dug up a mummy. And they were able to date this uh, mummy during the reign of Hadrian, who died in 117 A.D. And uh, these, these were not uh, Dallas uh, Seminary graduates uh, or Multnomah graduates. These were unbelieving archaeologists, as far as I know. And they were uh, stripping off pieces of papyrus, trying to get to the real mummy, stripping off pieces of the case, mummy case, and uh, they found a, a piece of papyrus with Greek writing on it, and they looked at it, and you know what it was? It was a section from the Gospel of John. John died about 100 A.D. Within 17 years of his death, part of the text of the Gospel of John had been discarded, found on its way all the way over to Alexandria, which is clear across the Mediterranean Sea from where John was. He was probably on the island of Patmos or in Palestine, and had been discarded, used as a mummy case. Seventeen years! And uh, that's the sort of evidence that we have for the reliability of the text. We have thousands of manuscripts going back to the third and second century, so that we know that what we have here is basically the text of of the uh, uh, of the apostle, it's trustworthy. So when someone comes and tells you that, uh, no, no, the, the, the thing has all been distorted. The early church twisted it, and we have the originals here. Invite them in, and and tell those dear kids that they simply don't know what they're talking about. Frederick Kenyon, who has written on the subject of the lost. Uh, Autographs, the, the lost originals, says that uh, if you were to take all of the disputed passages in the entire New Testament 
and uh, gather them in one place, they would occupy less than one half of one page in a Greek New Testament. And not one of these, uh, of these verses or phrases has anything whatever to do with Christian doctrine. They do not deal with the deity of Christ or with the substitutionary atonement or the resurrection of Christ. They tend to be grammatical problems, differences in spelling, and that sort of thing. If you were to gather all the disputed passages that deal with spelling and grammar and, and minutiae, it would occupy less than one half of one page in a Greek New Testament. In other words, we don't have 99% of what the apostles wrote. We have 99 and 99 one-hundredths percent of what the apostles wrote. So don't be fooled. Don't believe people when they tell you we don't have the pure thing. We've got it. It's right here. This is what the apostles wrote. But more importantly, not only is this an accurate text, it is an authoritative text, and it's one that we need to listen to and to which we need to give heed. Because Paul says he is an apostle with special authority, and he was granted that apostleship by the will of God. Now, the second thing, Paul, uh, that we need to notice about the introduction is simply the addressees. Paul is the writer. The recipients are the saints. That's us. We're the saints. Now, before you get uh, carried away, uh, this is not a reference to our personal piety. Uh, no one has slipped up and failed to canonize you. That's not the point. This is the, the term that's used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament for God's people. It simply means a special people set apart for God, a unique and special designation that's given to us because we belong to God. This is the term that the Greek, New Te- uh, that, that the Greek translations of the Old Testament use, uses to refer to the people of God, to Israel. And it's used in the New Testament to refer to the community of faith, those of us that have been placed into Christ. Now, that's the second thing that Paul uh, says in this introduction. We are saints, special people at Ephesus or at Boise who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, there have been tens of thousands of uh, words written on the subject of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. But just to make a lot of information uh, very simple, all that, that phrase means is that we've been united with Christ. We've been identified with him. God, by means of the Holy Spirit, has placed us into Christ so that whatever happens to Christ happens to us. And when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin, he doesn't see our failure, he doesn't see the wreckage of the past. What he sees is the Lord Jesus himself. And that's all he sees. As the hymn writer puts it, near, so very, very near to God, near I could not be. For in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. So that when God sees you and me, he doesn't see our stumbling and our failure. And what he sees is his Son and his righteousness. I've mentioned before my friend Ted Weiss, who says when he gets to heaven, and some of his old cronies that he knew in his pre-Christian days would spot him in heaven and say, Hey, Ted, what are you doing up here? Ted's response will be to point to Jesus and say, I'm with him. 
And so it is with us. That's what it means to be in Christ. If you turn the page to chapter 2, where he describes our deadness in sin, he says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when Christ died and was buried and was exalted, it's as if the same, the same thing happened to us. Now, I can't explain that. I'm not going to even try to explain it when we get into chapter 2. I'm simply going to say what the apostle says, that we have been identified with Christ. It's as though we hung on the cross, we were buried, and we were raised to newness of life. What Jesus went through, we went through. What God sees when he sees us is not us, but Jesus and his righteousness. Now, chapter, chapter 1, in chapter 1, he spells out what it means to be in Christ. Chris uh, will expand on this uh, passage next week, but uh, there are six things, he says, accrue to us as a result of our identification with Christ. We are chosen in verse 4. We are predestined. We are redeemed in verse 7. He has made known to us the mystery of his will in verse 8. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. In verse 13, we have been sealed. This is our wealth. This is our worth. This is what God has done for us because he has placed us in Christ. And then in verses 15 to the end of the chapter, he prays that we will comprehend these great facts, and that we will apprehend them, that we'll grasp them. It's one thing to know that uh, when God looks at us, he sees our Lord Jesus. It's one thing to know that we've been chosen and predestined, and we've been given this great revelation, and we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit himself, with the mark of identification, that we will never be lost, and that God will never lose us. It's one thing to know all of these things, but how, how do you get it from here to here? How do you make it real? How does it become a part of your thinking in your life? Well, it's not merely a rational process. It's not merely a matter of reading the Bible and believing it. It's prayer that translates truth into life. And so Paul prays that these, that these facts, these great facts, will become real and a part of, a part of our life. And in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he says something about our new condition in Christ. You, he says, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Good description of our impotence, our inability to change, to rise above our habits and the, the practices and sins that habitually frustrate us and, and defeat us. As Bob Dylan puts it, stone cold dead did I come out of the womb. From womb to tomb. Unless Jesus raises us, we're dead. We, we have no way of conquering our, uh, our sin. We're dead. But uh, Paul says in verse 5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It's a sort of a Charles Atlas uh, thing. You know, the old ads where you see the 97-pound weakling who's always getting sand kicked in his face and he can't do anything about it. And after uh, six weeks of uh, working out with Charles Atlas, you're, uh, you're able to defend yourself. That's something of what Paul says here. Uh, you were dead formerly, 
You were a 97-pound weakling in terms of sin, but uh, now you've been raised to newness of life. And then in verses 11 through 22, he says something about the new relationship that we have. Not only is there a new condition we experience, but there's a whole new way of looking at our relationship with Christ. Before we were far off, and now we've been made near. And I, I think here he's talking about the problem of worth. The first ten verses deal with the problem of, of impotence, inability to deal with sin in our life. To rise above it and conquer it and live victoriously. In, in verses 11 through 22, he's talking about the problem of self-image. problem with which most of us struggle. Feelings of inadequacy and worthlessness. And Paul points out that that feeling of worth comes not from great accomplishment or the praise of man but from realizing who we are in Christ. We're a new man, new woman. We have a new relationship. Uh, when the uh, apostles came back from one of their, the missionary junkets that Jesus sent them on, they were excited about casting out demons. And uh, they were sharing the victories that, uh, that had been theirs on this trip. And Jesus said, look, don't, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He realized that, that success in ministry is fading. The one thing that will make us feel worthwhile is the knowledge that our names are written in heaven. We have a new relationship, that God loves us just the way we are. So uh, Paul talks about the problem of powerlessness, and then he talks about the problem of worthlessness. And then in chapter 3, he sets out to pray that these truths will become real in our life, and he gets sidetracked. You ever do that? You start to say something, and you lose your train of thought and you wander off in another direction. But this was one of those sidetracks that the Spirit of God uh, led Paul on because he reveals some, some truth we would not otherwise know about, his, the, about the mystery, the, the special revelation that was given to him, and then his ministry. That's all in, 13, uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And then in verse 14, he gets back to his prayer. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, and essentially it's the same sort of prayer you find in chapter 1. That all of this truth, the power we have in Christ, and the uh, worthwhileness that's ours because of our relationship to him, he prays that that will become real to us. And then in chapter 4, he, 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 you, have a, you have a turning point. Here's a major division in the book between chapters 3 and chapter 4. In chapters 1 and 2 and 3, he's talking about what it means to be in Christ. That's, that's the theme of that section, and that, that phrase occurs over and over again. Because of our identification with Christ, we have all of the assets that are itemized in chapter 1, and then Paul prays that we'll realize them. And then in chapter 2, we have power over sin, and we have uh, a new way of looking at ourselves because we're in Christ, and then he prays that we'll apprehend that. And then in chapter 4, he begins to talk about what it means to be in Boise. The first has to do with what it means to be in Christ. Chapter 4 through 6 is how to live in Boise. And the keynote here is to walk. He says, uh, says that in a number of different ways. In verse 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And what follows is an explanation of how one walks worthy of that, of that calling. We would expect uh, him to say, now that you have all of these resources in Christ, go out and work miracles and raise the dead and heal the sick and empty the hospitals. And uh, No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, 
be humble and gentle and non-defensive and put away your resentment and love each other and start working together as a body, using your gifts to serve one another. It's almost like shooting a sweet pea out of a 90-millimeter cannon. You know, you expect some uh, mighty revelation of the miraculous, and what he says is, now look, just go out and, and walk through the world the way our Lord Jesus did. The Lord had the, the uncanny knack of being able to live in the world and not be put off by the world, nor were people particularly put off by him. They were condemned by his, his righteousness, but they were never put off by his self-righteousness. He could live in a world where people swore and told dirty jokes and off-color <coughs> stories and, and uh, were less than ethical in their business, and yet he was perfectly at ease in that setting. And that's what Paul is preparing us for in chapters 4 through 6. It's a way to live in the world and have an impact upon those around us. It, and it has to do with our walk, and it, and it has to do with, with these basic things like being tender and loving and forgiving and kind and using your gifts. And then he says in verse 17, again, don't walk like the Gentiles, but walk in newness of, of life, which entails, in verse 25, telling the truth, stop fibbing to each other and and don't uh, be resentful, be angry, and yet don't sin. Sometimes you, it's right to be angry. We ought to be angry at certain, uh, certain things that, that are going on around us and things that people are doing to others. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. We ought to be morally outraged at times. But he says, don't let the sun go on your wrath. In other words, a, a, an anger that, that turns into resentment and bitterness is wrong. It needs to be put away. Don't steal anymore, but, but rather work hard so you can share. And uh, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and gossip and those sorts of things be put away and be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. And then in, verses, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, a word about sexual morality. He says, walk in love, but, but I'm talking about a different kind of love than you're going to pick up from, from the world. Walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, walk as wise men and women. Get, get smart. Learn how to, to live in the midst of society. Live out your identification with Christ right where it matters. In your home first. Wives being subject to your husbands. Verse 25, husbands loving your wives. Chapter 6, children obeying your parents. 6-4, fathers instructing your children. 6.5, slaves being obedient to those who are your masters, that is, those of you that are employees being subject to your employers. I've lost track of the men who have said to me, ah, oh, you know, that stuff works all right in the church, but it doesn't work out here in the world. In the, in the real world, where it's rough, you have to use a different approach to that sort of thing. Paul says, no, that's exactly where it works. If it doesn't work there, it doesn't work at all. If it doesn't work in your home, in terms of your relationship with your spouse or your children or your parents or your employer or your employees or your union or, or whatever, you know, let's just let's forget the whole thing. Shove the Bible, raffle off our churches to General Motors or something, and then let's get down to the business of just living life uh, in the real world. But Paul says we can learn...
how to live wisely in this world just, just as our Lord did and have an impact upon it. And finally in verse 10, he says, Do so even though all hell breaks loose around you. That's literally what he says in 10 and following. We have an enemy who's out to get us. And when we start to live in Christ, in Boise, we're going we're gonna to be fiercely attacked by principalities and powers in heavenly places. You know, Satan doesn't care if we go to church. He doesn't care if you read the Bible. He doesn't even care if you believe the Bible is inspired. He doesn't mind if you teach a Sunday school class or serve on a committee or even share your faith. But when you get down to the business of obeying Christ in the rough and tumble of the, of, the, of the world, the real world that you live in, then we're all going to experience the worst kind of satanic opposition. All hell will literally break loose. So what do we do? Well, he tells us how and how to put on the armor and how to do battle and how to rise above principalities as our Lord did when he was exalted above principalities and powers and given a place of authority in, in heavenly places. It's a can-do situation. We don't need to be intimidated and dominated by the world around us. The, the, the word that comes through to me in, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, and we'll refer to it time and again, is, is that of walking. I love that, that analogy of walking because it's so apt. You know, here's the wealth that's ours in Christ, and he says, now go out and walk it. Well, one thing I've learned about watching three of my children learn how to walk is that, that you don't learn to walk immediately. And none of our kids leaped out of the crib and started doing wind sprints down the hall. It, it, they had to learn, and they had to fall on their nose time and time again and other parts of their anatomy. That's just part of, the, that's part of the process of learning to walk. You don't walk immediately. It takes time to learn. And it's painful, and you fall down. But what, what do you do when your kids fall down? You know, do you, do you rebuke them? Come on, kid, get up and walk. Do you reject them? No. That's part of the process. Failure is part of the process in learning to walk. The other thing that I've noticed in raising our, our children is that it really is a family project. Everybody gets excited when somebody takes a first step. You know, grandmother and the rest of the kids, they get all excited and they cheer and they, they yell and they holler when the child begins to walk and... And when he falls down, they pick him up, get him. You know, it, it's a, it's a, uh, it's exciting to to teach somebody how to walk. And I would say the same thing is true of us as as a body. We need to learn how to walk, and it's a painful process, and we're going to fail a lot. All of us will. I'll fail, and you'll fail. When we get serious about the business of living out our wealth in Christ out in in the in the city, out there where it where it really matters, we'll fail. But that's all right. What God looks for is progress. And secondly, we need one another. We need the encouragement and the help that comes from a body of believers who are all committed to, to helping one another walk. And that's why we want to study the book of Ephesians. We think that this book will teach us to do that in a way perhaps that no other book at this time in our life will teach us. Now we want to share together this morning the, uh, the Lord's table. And we'll ask the men to come forward and use this time as a time of renewal of our commitment to one another, to help one another learn to live out what we have in Christ in the world. Let's pray as, as the men come forward.
And would you take a few moments to search your own heart and to commit yourself to the process of learning to walk and help others to walk. Lord, guide our thoughts as we gather around this table. Remind us of your death and all the other facts of our salvation with which we are identified because we've been placed there by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.